Well, good evening and welcome to our latest Gospel Issues seminar with Christian Concern. Um, tonight we're talking about should Christians support the right to die? Uh, topical issue, we know that this is on the political agenda uh, once again um, in this country and in, and in Scotland in particular as well. Um, and I'm delighted tonight that we've got Dr. Peter Saunders, uh, former general surgeon and then chief executive after that of the Christian Medical Fellowship for many years and now chief executive of the International Christian Medics and Dentists Association, I hope I've got that right, it's in ICMDA. Um, very experienced, very knowledgeable on this topic. He has prepared a presentation uh, which we're going to show you now for about 25 minutes. Um, while he's watching that, do put your comments, questions and ideas into the um, comments book if you're watching live on YouTube or Facebook. And we will then have Dr. Peter Saunders live with me uh, to answer your questions about this and discuss the issues arising about this very important topic. So uh, do watch it, note your questions down, write them in the chat and comments, and look forward to the discussion with him after this. I know this is going to be a really excellent presentation, so I look forward to it. So we'll move straight into that. Thank you very much. Should Christians support the right to die? I come to this question from four perspectives. As a general surgeon who's managed many patients with terminal illnesses or injuries, as a person who's lost loved ones with cancer and dementia, as someone who's been involved for almost 30 years in advocacy on assisted suicide and euthanasia, and finally as a Bible-believing Christian aiming to apply the Bible to issues in contemporary culture. I worked for the Christian Medical Fellowship for 27 years, the last 18 as CEO, and was also the director of Care Not Killing for 12 years from its inception in 2012 until 2018 and during this time I took part in hundreds of media interviews and debates on issues at the end of life through a long progression of parliamentary uh, bills and court cases all aiming to liberalise the law on assisted suicide and euthanasia. But I can remember only one occasion when the media was so desperate to speak to me that several television vans lined up on the green outside our house, jostling to be next in line. The year was 2014, and the occasion was that Lord Carey, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, had surprisingly just come out in favour of Lord Falconer's assisted dying bill, which was due to have its second reading in the House of Lords on the 18th of July that year. Lord Falconer advocated licensing doctors to dispense lethal drugs to mentally competent adults with a life expectancy of six months or less and a settled wish to die in order that they might take their own lives. So it was an assisted suicide bill. And the media was, of course, highlighting the fact that a Christian as eminent as Lord Carey was lending support to, uh, to Falconer's bill especially given that the Church of England at the time was implacably opposed to a change in the law. In response to Carey, Archbishop Justin Welby said that legalising assisted suicide would be dangerous, abusive and mistaken. He wrote, abuse, coercion and intimidation can be slow instruments in the hands of the unscrupulous, creating pressure on vulnerable people 
who are encouraged to do the decent thing. He went on, even when such pressure is not overt, the very presence of a law that permits assisted suicide on the terms proposed by Lord Faulkner is bound to lead to sensitive individuals feeling that they ought to stop being a burden to others. What sort of country, he said, would we be creating if we were to allow this sword of Damocles to hang over the head of every vulnerable, terminally ill person in the country? Welby was articulating the key argument that has kept the law as it is through the last 30 years of campaigning by pressure groups, namely that a change in the law to allow assisted suicide or euthanasia would inevitably put pressure on vulnerable people to end their lives for fear of being a burden upon others. So what had led Carey to take a line at odds with his own church? Well, first, Carey was not supporting full-blown liberalisation, but rather arguing for a limited change in the law. In his own words, it would be outrageous if it were extended beyond the terminally ill to an ever-widening group of people, including the disabled and the depressed. Such a step would impose terrible pressures on some of the most vulnerable people in our society. But then he said that the cases that had led to him changing his view on the matter were those of Tony Nicholson and Paul Lamb, two men with severe paralysis, who were not terminally ill and who would not have qualified under Falconer's proposed law anyway. So in saying this, he was actually demonstrating the impossibility of framing a limited law that would encompass all who might like to make use of it. The point is that many people who wish to end their lives are not terminally ill, not mentally competent, and not adults. And the vast majority of those who are terminally ill want assisted living, not assisted dying. So why a law just for the terminally ill? It seemed utterly illogical. Kerry was focusing on two disabled people with a wish to die, but did not tell us that all major disability rights groups in Britain, including Disability Rights UK, SCOPE, the UK Disabled People's Council, Not Dead Yet UK, opposed any change in the law, believing that it would lead to increased prejudice toward them and increased pressure on them to end their lives. Nor did Kerry touch on the issue of elder abuse and the way a law allowing assisted suicide would bring a huge new dimension into that problem. The charity Action on Elder Abuse, for example, says that more than 500,000 elderly people are abused every year in the United Kingdom. And sadly, the vast majority of such abuse and neglect is perpetrated by friends and relatives, so-called, very often with financial gain as the main motive. It would be very naive to think that many of the elderly people who are abused and neglected every year, as well as many severely disabled individuals, would not be put under pressure to end their lives if assisted suicide were permitted by law. Kerry also suggested that because powerful painkillers like morphine can occasionally shorten life, although we know this virtually never 
occurs in skilled hands because the therapeutic dose is lower than the lethal dose and it's possible to kill the pain without killing the patient. Uh, but he argued that we should therefore dispense lethal doses of barbiturate drugs, not a painkiller at all, but an anaesthetic with the deliberate intention of killing people. This was to misunderstand the, the difference between, on the one hand, proportionate pain relief, where the intention is to relieve suffering rather than to kill, and assisted suicide, where the clear intention is to take a life. The first is good medical practice. The second breaks both the Hippocratic Oath and the Judeo-Christian ethic and has been considered unethical by the medical profession for over 2,500 years. Kerry appeared not to understand that clear distinction. He then uh, cited a British medical journal editorial and some comments by a public health doctor who interestingly had no experience whatsoever in managing dying patients uh, in favour of euthanasia as support by the medical profession from, for his view. But he failed to tell us that the vast majority of UK doctors are opposed to legalising euthanasia, along with the British Medical Association, the Royal College of Physicians, the Royal College of General Practitioners, the Association for Palliative Medicine, and the British Geriatric Society. And then he advanced pain as the main driver for a change in the law, but he failed to mention that in Oregon, which legalised assisted suicide in 1997, fewer than three in ten people making use of the law uh, cite inadequate pain control or even the fear of it as a reason for wanting to end their lives. The top reasons in Oregon relate to loss of meaning and purpose. Loss of autonomy, 93%. Having less ability to engage in activities making life enjoyable, 89%. Loss of dignity, 73%. And feeling they're a burden on family, friends and caregivers, 49%. These are existential or spiritual rather than physical symptoms. Carey then wrote about Jesus' mission being underpinned with compassion for those suffering to whom he brought comfort, healing and a new sense of dignity. But he barely mentioned the specialty of palliative medicine or the hospice movement in large part pioneered by Christians and in which Britain is a world leader which seeks to do exactly that. Nor did he tell us that the symptoms accompanying dying are less to be feared now than at any time in history because of medical advances and that requests for assisted suicide and euthanasia are extremely rare amongst those who are properly cared for. Nor did he bring a call to make this excellent care much more widely accessible. In fact, to the contrary, he seemed to be suggesting that we needed to legalise assisted suicide because there was a postcode lottery of hospice care. But what I found most astounding about Carey's case was the almost complete lack of any theological framework for his argument. There was a vague reference to Christian principles of open-hearted benevolence and compassion and one mention of Jesus, but there was no discernible Christian worldview underpinning what he said. Nothing of the fact that God made us and owns us. Nothing of biblical morality or the sixth commandment. No doctrine of the fall. Little, 
insight into the depths of human depravity and the need for strong laws to deter exploitation and abuse of vulnerable people. Nothing of the cross or resurrection. Nothing about hope beyond death. Nothing of courage and perseverance in the face of suffering. No recognition of the need to make one's peace with God and others before death. No real drive to make things better for dying patients and no real empathy with the feelings of vulnerable, disabled and elderly people who feared a law like falconers and who would be campaigning in force outside Parliament just the very next week. Carey had instead produced an opinion piece that was high on emotion but weak on argument, that capitulated to the spirit of the age, that enthroned personal autonomy above public safety, that saw no meaning or purpose in suffering, that appeared profoundly naive about the abuse of elderly and disabled people, that looked forward to no future beyond the grave and which could have actually been written by a member of the National Secular Society, the British Humanist Association or Voluntary Euthanasia Society. Kerry's case for legalising assisted suicide was a council of despair devoid of Christian faith and hope. And yet it is a view that is shared by many in the church today. And that is why it's so important that we continue to address this question, should Christians support the right to die in the churches as well as in the public square. And in my experience, it is a matter that is very seldom addressed seriously in churches, even though it's one of the leading issues in public policy today. Why is this? Well, the answer to that question is that many Christians do not consider this to be a gospel issue. You might consider this quote. If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the word of God except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, are attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing him. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved, and to be steady on all the battlefront besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. Now, this famous quote has been attributed to Martin Luther by Christian commentators as illustrious as Francis Schaeffer, but as argued convincingly by Carl Wieland, it actually comes from a 19th century novel referring to Luther by Elizabeth Rundle Charles called The Chronicles of the Schomburg-Cotter family, written in 1864. However, according to Wieland, Luther did actually say something very similar. He said that if people were publicly open about every other aspect of their Christian faith, but chose not to admit their belief on some single point of doctrine for fear of what might happen to them if their conviction on that one point became known, they were effectively denying Christ, period. And as Christians, we are fighting in a spiritual battle. But Martin Luther's point is that not all God's truth is equally under attack at any one time. In any culture and generation, there are certain truths which are more under attack than others. As Christians in the 21st century, we need to be aware of which Christian truth is most under attack and ensure that we're faithful in standing for that truth.
There are some Christian causes which in Britain today are politically correct. If you campaign, for example, to end child poverty, to care for trees in the Amazon rainforest, to fight cancer, to clamp down on loan sharks, to curb human trafficking, you'll find yourself in a large like-minded company of both believers and unbelievers. This does not mean that these are not important causes for which Christians should fight, they are. But my point is that few, if any, will publicly oppose you for making a stand on them. Especially in the church, you'll find many allies who will stand alongside you. It's terribly important that, that Christians and churches, particularly at a time of economic recession and post-COVID, are moving into food bank provision, debt counselling and street pastoring. The needs are great and we should and must be involved. But if we restrict ourselves to those areas of Christian service that our society applauds, then we are actually being selective in our discipleship. Luther would say we are even say that we are denying Christ. Now, most Christians or most believers are very accepting of Christians who support popular causes, and it's tempting to imagine that if we're being good and faithful Christians, everyone will like us. But uh, Jesus said exactly the opposite. The Bible reminds us that everybody who genuinely seeks to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted in one way uh, or another. So which areas of Christian truth are most under attack today? I'd suggest to you that the battles are most intense over issues of ethics in the very areas where Christian concern works, especially over identity, sexuality, marriage, and the sanctity of life. It's these areas where raising one's head above the parapet is likely to attract most fire from the opposition. So why do we see such confusion and division in the church on issues like assisted suicide and euthanasia? Why do we have people speaking as Carey did? Well, first, and perhaps obviously, the prevailing culture has shifted hugely on these questions. The so-called mountains of culture, parliament, universities, institutions, law, science, media, arts, entertainment, are increasingly dominated by people with an atheistic worldview. This new liberal secular elite believes that God doesn't exist, that death is the end, that morality is relative to each individual, but in practice most adopt the ethics of secular humanism. Undoubtedly, this cultural change has affected the church. Second, as I've already alluded to, taking a traditional view on these issues now carries a cost that it did not have a generation ago in 2012 Christians in Parliament, an official all-party parliamentary group chaired by, at the time by Gary Streeter, launched an inquiry called Clearing the Ground, which was tasked with considering the question, are Christians marginalised in the UK? And its main conclusion was that Christians in the UK face problems in living out their faith, and these problems have been made uh, caused mainly and exacerbated by social, cultural and legal changes over the past decade, even more over the most recent decade, there is loss of reputation, loss of job, loss of income to consider with certain Christian beliefs and behaviours as a cost. Third, some Christian leaders with large followings, like Carey, have changed their position on key 
ethical issues, not just with respect to marriage and sexuality, but also on matters like abortion and euthanasia. And fourth, there's been a huge decline in Bible reading and study generally, and in Bible teaching specifically. In particular, there's very little teaching in our churches about these sorts of ethical issues. So what does the Bible teach about euthanasia and assisted suicide? Well, I've alluded to a lot of it already, but uh, there are two instances of euthanasia in the Bible. In the first, Abimelech, uh, the, the anti-judge, believing himself to be fatally wounded with a fractured skull after being hit on the head by a millstone, asks his armour-bearer to kill him, to spare him the indignity of being killed by a woman. A woman had thrown the millstone, death with dignity, if you like. Uh, in the second, an Amalekite dispatches the mortally injured Saul, still alive after a failed attempt at suicide in 2 Samuel 1. And these two cases demonstrate the two main arguments for euthanasia, <coughs> autonomy or death with dignity, and compassion or release from suffering. But it's not biblical narrative that we look to in order to establish our case. Most importantly, the Bible tells us that human beings are unique among God's creatures in being made in the image of God, Genesis 1.26. And it is on this basis, after the flood, that God introduces to all humankind the death penalty for murder, Genesis 9.6 and 7. The prohibition against killing legally innocent people is later formalised in the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, Exodus 20.13 and Deuteronomy 5.17. And the Hebrew word for murder is uh, ratsak, or the Greek phonuo, and its meaning is further defined in four main passages in the Pentateuch. That's Exodus 21, 12 to 14, Leviticus 24, 17 to 21, Numbers 35, 16 to 31, and Deuteronomy 19, 4 to 13. And these passages resolve any ambiguity for us about what the command you shall not murder actually means and they give us a precise definition of what is prohibited and which has been put into the statute books in most western countries namely the intentional killing of an innocent human being the intentional killing of an innocent human being and all through the scripture we see a universal prohibition on what is called the shedding of innocent blood. Euthanasia clearly falls within this biblical definition. You see, there is no provision for compassionate killing, even at the person's request, and there is no recognition of a so-called right to die because all human life actually belongs to God. Psalm 24.1 Our lives are not our own possession. Suicide, and therefore assisted suicide, is therefore equally wrong. Jesus, of course, taught in the Sermon of the Mount that we should go beyond the mere letter of the Sixth Commandment to fulfil the very spirit of love on which it is based, Matthew 5, 21 and 22. We're called to walk in Jesus' footsteps, to be imitators of God, to love as he himself Love. Sadly, how, however, many Christians are confused about euthanasia and assisted suicide 
and therefore fall prey to hard cases and false dichotomies. It's often argued that we have only two equally undesirable alternatives to choose from, either living hell on the one hand or the euthanasia needle on the other, both of which are, of course, imperfect and unloving solutions. But there is a third way, the way of the cross. And the way of the cross calls us to give our whole selves to the love and service of others by expending our time, our money, our energy in finding compassionate solutions to human suffering that don't break God's law. It's found its practical shape historically in the hospice movement and in good palliative care, pioneered in large part by Christian doctors and nurses. But when a person's physical, social, psychological and spiritual needs are adequately tended to, and we've seen in Oregon the main reason people seek assisted suicide is for spiritual reasons, then requests for euthanasia are very rare indeed. But perhaps the most powerful Christian argument against euthanasia is that death is not the end. God's intervention through Christ's death and resurrection for our sins means that through the eyes of faith we can look forward to a new world after death with God where there is no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Revelation 21.4 For those, however, who do not know God, euthanasia is not a merciful release at all. It may rather be propelling them towards a judgment for which they are unprepared. It may be the worst thing that we could ever do for a person. Fundamentally, euthanasia is wrong because God says it is wrong to take innocent human life. Instead, he points us to a better way, offering hope, love and compassionate care. The arguments against legalising assisted suicide and euthanasia that have convinced Parliament are strong. It is dangerous because vulnerable people will inevitably be exploited and abused. It is unnecessary because those uh, who receive good care will rarely have ever requested. And it is inappropriate because of the current, because the current law is effective both in deterring abusers whilst at the same time dealing mercifully with desperate people who cross the line in difficult circumstances. Now these arguments which have repeatedly convinced Parliament not to change the law to allow assisted suicide or euthanasia in any situation at all are all good arguments that Christians should use in the public square. But at the very heart we need to remember that human lives including our own lives, belong not to us, but to God. That we have no right to take the life of someone made in the image of God, even if they ask us. And that instead we're called to walk in the footsteps of Christ, who spent his life caring compassionately for the sick, who pointed out the path of faith and obedience, and who gave his life in order that we might live with a certain hope of a future where our comparatively light and momentary troubles today will be drowned 
by an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And this is why Christians should not and must not support the so-called right to die. There is a far, far better way. Great. Well, that was an excellent presentation. I really appreciate that. And I think we have Dr. Peter Saunders in the background now, uh, ready to uh, to join us. Hi, Peter, you're muted. You might want to turn your, your microphone on. Um, but thank you so much for that presentation, full of wisdom, really well explained, um, all of those things. And I, I can see a few questions um, coming in in the chat as well there. Um, Peter, I'm going to I'm going to start there and ask you um, a question. What What does the law say at the moment in Britain, and is there any way in which you would change the law as it stands today? There are two laws in Britain which relate to this. So the first is the murder law, which is part of common law. So it's not a statute, but uh, has been set historically in the courts, and that uh, deems any intentional act of killing to be wrong. So that includes uh, euthanasia, where the doctor kills the patient. Mm -hmm. And the other law that's relevant is the Suicide Act. Uh, it it uh, says that if you help or assist someone else to end their own life, then uh, you can, you will be breaking the law. So under the murder law, you can go to prison for 15 years or more, a life sentence effectively. Under the Suicide Act, it's a 14-year sentence, but it's discretionary. So often the judge will waive it and make it a lot less severe. Some people who have been convicted don't go to court at all. So when a case of assisted suicide is brought to the police attention, they've got to investigate it thoroughly, bring their evidence to the Director of Public Prosecutions, and then the, the DPP has to decide First of all, is there enough evidence to bring a conviction? And uh, if so, is it in the public interest to do so? And in answering the second question about public interest, they, they uh, look at a whole lot of factors around the case. So uh, not all, all cases uh, come to court, uh, and those that do, uh, many of them uh, get quite light sentences. I, I'm not aware of any case where the full force of the law has been brought to bear. But nonetheless, there is a complete ban on both euthanasia, where the doctor kills the patient, if you like, and assisted suicide, where someone helps the person to kill uh, themselves. And uh, we think that's, that's very important because uh, the, the penalties that the law holds in reserve that can be used act as a very strong deterrent to exploitation and abuse so that people so really how does this, how does this work with like um in the lockdown matt hancock said you could travel to switzerland to one of their clinics over there um for assisted suicide is that legal to do that well it's there's there's nothing to stop people going to Switzerland. And of course, assisted suicide is legal there. And people do go, a small number uh, go, probably 15 to 20 or so a year. Not a, not a, great, uh, 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 not a great number. But um, it, it, it boils, it's, it, it's not illegal to commit suicide, you see. 
what what is illegal is to assist help or assist someone else to to do it and uh suicide interestingly was illegal up until the uh the law was changed by the suicide act back in in the 1960s uh but they i mean the, the mind boggles doesn't it if someone's successful you you're not going to convict them but but if you were unsuccessful you could be prosecuted you see and people thought well no people are only going to try and take their life if if they're desperate or perhaps have a mental health problem or, or something so we shouldn't be prosecuting people but but what they kept in force was that if you assist someone else to commit suicide that is very very serious so that's what the what, what the law is against and and the reason for that is because the, this fear that uh there will be exploitation and abuse of vulnerable people by someone else who has something to gain from their deaths you know whether it might be financial or emotional or mm. getting rid of a care burden uh, or whatever so that there needed to be that that strong uh law there to to deter people and and the the evidence of the law working very effectively is is the fact that there are a very very small number of assisted suicides that we see uh, in the UK at the moment as opposed to other jurisdictions where the the law has been changed and and where you see a steady rise in cases okay well, that's that's very helpful and you would like the law to be kept as it is peter yeah i th i think our current law is is clear and it's right it, it's clear because it it paints a very very clear boundary now imagine um, a law which said you must not travel greater than uh, 70 miles per hour on the motorway unless uh, you were taking a sick child to hospital going to visit a, an elderly relative uh, uh, were late for a meeting or whatever and you had all these kind of exceptions you would have already broken the law broken the 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 clear boundary of it and so it's far better to have a, a very clear boundary and then allow the courts to show discretion uh, and compassion when it's needed rather than to create all kinds of exceptions once you create exceptions you you uh you uh, lead to the breaking down of of the law and it loses its effectiveness and and the law is right because because uh, of the great dangers of changing it as we've seen in other jurisdictions okay so that leads on to some of the questions and thank you for questions uh, popping up on on youtube and facebook if you're watching live and um, do keep them coming but um, ross bruff on facebook um, asked a question um, about ending suffering which sort of links into what we've just been saying there peter i'll just read it for you um, he says this ending suffering is more important than prolonging life in my opinion when a person's suffering cannot be managed and the most compassionate thing to do to help them to end their suffering which i presume he means assisted suicide there um it's not helping to end a person it's helping to end a person's suffering in each case is different decisions be personal but i believe everyone should have the option so how would you answer someone like that peter well i'd start by saying it's not our duty to prolong life indefinitely you know uh it's it's not the natural end to life that we're opposed to it's because all lives do come to an end and and uh 
know, it, it's part of the human condition. It's, it's interesting that Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great preacher, when he got to the end of his life and he could see it coming, he said, don't hold me back from the glory. You know, so he, he did not want his life to be prolonged. Yeah, he, refused some, uh, he refused some medical treatments, didn't he? Yeah. But you, the, wouldn't be, you wouldn't be against people refusing medical treatments, would you? No, and, and I, I think we've got to be very clear that uh, when a person refuses medical treatment and, and dies, uh, even as a result of that, that's not euthanasia or assisted suicide. When you're giving people pain relief proportionately to relieve pain and their life is shortened, it will very, very rarely happen that way. But if your intention is to relieve pain, that's not uh, euthanasia or assisted suicide when when someone uh but but martin lloyd jones's point was that the reach is a point and the bible talks about a time to die doesn't it when mm -hmm. when we say okay uh that's it no more intervention or treatment i'm i'm ready uh but there's a huge difference between that and changing the law so that doctors or others can actively end a person's life so allowing a person to die is sometimes wrong if it's negligence and you could easily save them or there are effective medical treatments, but it's sometimes good medical practice to allow a person to die at the end of life from an incurable uh, illness. But uh, actively ending a person's life is always wrong, ethically, morally, philosophically wrong, and, and that's what changing the law to allow assisted suicide or euthanasia would be. And that's been the position of doctors really from the time of Hippocrates, the Hippocratic Oath back in 600 BC. Of course, the Hippocratic, uh, uh, the, the uh, Judeo-Christian ethic as well upholds the same. And the World Medical Association uh, upholds the same principle even today after 2,500 years of medicine, if you like. So it's, it's giving the power to kill that is dangerous and that's where we must not go legally even in terms of creating exceptions for what seem like hard cases because hard cases inevitably make bad law and inevitably there will be abuse as we've seen in in other jurisdictions yeah and um perhaps we'll come on to that harrington on facebook um talking about um, the question about quality of life. Um, if that question here, let me just read it to you. Um, I support assisted dying as a person who has no quality of life and has no independence um, and is, I, mean, I think he means in living a terrible, helpless life. How would you like to live a similar life? So um, Peter, how would you answer Dave there? Well, I, I think First of all, we should be saying, well, what's making a person feel this way? Right. And as I said in the talk, the vast majority of people who are pushing for euthanasia or assisted suicide are not doing it for reasons of pain, but for, for what we call existential or, or spiritual reasons. It's because they want to exercise their autonomy, the things they used to enjoy they can no longer do, they feel their life is undignified, they feel they're being a burden upon others uh, and, and so on, you know. And uh, I, I think it's, it's, as I say, dangerous <clears throat> to change the law to allow people like that to end their lives because of the inevitable collateral 
damage it will do to other people who are vulnerable in the same condition. So I think what our priority has to be is to provide the best possible care that we, we can. And most the, the vast majority of symptoms which people worry about at the end of life uh, are things that are medically treatable. Perhaps not every doctor knows how to do it, but the specialty of palliative care, uh, the hospice movement, you know, we're, we're far better now at relieving suffering than, than we've ever been in all history and things are getting better all the time. And I think we also need to realize that a lot of this boils down to the, the patient themselves. You know, you can get people with uh, absolutely identical conditions. Uh, one wants to end their life, the other wants to, to uh, go on. I, I remember at a debate hearing a profoundly disabled person uh, who who couldn't who, you know could hardly speak could hardly get the words out but but the point she wanted to make was we want assisted living not assisted dying it took about 30 seconds to say it we want assisted living not assisted dying so what she was saying is look these are the things that make my life intolerable so what i want is help and support in these things and so that's where our efforts should be directed and I, I remember there, there were two two young men, two rugby players who broke their necks. Uh, one went to um, one went to Switzerland and ended his life. Uh, the other one ended up running a charity for disabled people and uh, was a motivational speaker in schools. And the, the really interesting thing was that they had exactly the same injuries. You see. And, and you, see, you see this, whether it's cancer or chronic diseases or whatever, it, it's the whole thing, you know, two men looked out from prison bars, one saw mud and one saw stars. And a, a lot of it is about helping people to find meaning and purpose in the face of, of suffering. So, you know, that's what I'd say. Well, one of the, one of the most inspirational books uh, I have ever read is one called The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. And it's about a French editor, the editor of Elle magazine, the women's magazine, who had a terrible stroke while driving, which left him with what's called the locked-in syndrome. So he he appeared to be unconscious, but was fully conscious. And he couldn't move anything or speak. All he could do was blink. And when they realized this, they realized uh, he could communicate and he actually the first thing he communicated was I want death so he, he he wanted to die understandably it's like someone in that condition and then he was he was helped to come through that and ended up uh, writing this brilliant book uh, which he he dictated by blinking uh, wow. letter to uh, the nurse and the physiotherapist who'd helped him and it's interesting when when he said I want death, the, the reaction of these two women was to say, you know, we actually really love you, we value you, we want to do everything for you. You know, how can you turn your back upon that? Let us serve you and help you. And, and they did. And so the key for him was finding uh, meaning and purpose in his existence. And, and I think we've got to recognize that often the, the real problem is not physical, but, but spiritual. And it's helping people to get through desperate situations to a, a point where they uh, start to believe their lives are really worth living again. And of course, if if you start from the principle where you say, well, uh, this option of killing the patient or helping them kill themselves is just not open to me. So then 
what am I going to do instead? And it's actually that that's driven medicine and surgery. I, I'm a general surgeon, you know, over the last, uh, particularly last 200 years or so to develop in the way it has, because we know we can't go down the killing route. And so we've got to do something better. And that, that's that been a, a huge driver for uh, improved medical treatment. So, um, and if we change the law, it's dangerous because vulnerable people will inevitably be exploited and abused. Uh, it's unnecessary because if you look after people properly and you address not just their physical or mental or social symptoms, but also their spiritual symptoms, questions of meaning and purpose and so so forth, then a very, very small number want to go on with that. You know, people change their views when they're properly looked after. I've seen it so often. And and, and finally, you know, it's 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 morally wrong because of uh, these traditions of years of medical ethics, the Judeo-Christian ethic, as we'd say as Christians, because our lives belong ultimately to God and we don't have a right to take uh, even our own life, let alone that of someone else. We've got to do the 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 opposite thing to care and be compassionate and attend to their their symptoms which are prompting this request to end their lives that's very very helpful peter really helpful there's another question here from um someone called jd flam in if i've got that right on facebook um asking whether people should have the right to die um I here's, here's what here's what they say i think you should be able to die if you have a lifelong condition so um, so now it's we've gone from suffering to quality of life to a lifelong condition. Yeah. Um, what would you say? I think, the problem, I think the problem, I was given the title, of course, should there be a right to die? And we just yeah. think about that. Um, we're not really talking about a right to die because dying is something that happens to all of us anyway. It's a bit like talking about a right to obey gravity. You know, it's... it's <laughs> <laughs> going to happen yes okay. later yeah. if we're christians maybe christ will return first but if not yeah. we're all going to die of some illness or injury yeah. it's yeah. not really a right to die we're talking about it's a right to be killed a right to have one's life ended and yeah. that's been quite different because once you grant that sort of right then you're uh, imposing a duty on others you can't have a right without for one person without a duty for others a duty on yeah. doctors nurses uh, families, uh, you know, mm. and so on. Mm. So mm. that's the first part of the question. But but the second part's interesting. If you have a lifelong condition, and of course that raises the question: well, what kind of condition are we talking about? Mm. And and the problem with with legislation in this area is that it's impossible to define a law that will not be pushed and extended. You see. Mm. Because yeah. what we see in places like the Netherlands, Belgium, Canada, some US states which have legalized either euthanasia or assisted suicide or both, is we see inevitably what we call incremental extension. So you, you get an in, a gradual increase in numbers uh, of people, but then you also get an extension of the categories of people to be included. So, you know, you start with, you start with the terminally ill, then it's the chronically ill. You start with the uh, physically ill, then it's the mentally ill. You start with uh, with adults and then it's children. You know, what, what about a, a child of 12 who has gillet competence or whatever? So inevitably there will be, as we've seen, a pushing of the boundaries. 
and and so lifelong condition well what are we talking about um a short a life expectancy of six months or we talk about a chronic disease that you would die from without treatment like diabetes but live for decades with treatment or are we looking at something that won't kill you even like you know arthritis for, for example in most cases it's um, the the minute you create an exception for any kind of category of people at all you will get put people pushing the boundaries that's what we see in practice and that will inevitably happen and the reason it happens is because if you you think of the main reasons people give for wanting to change it all and the two main reasons one of them is autonomy it's it's my right it's my body or whatever mm. and the other one is compassion you know i'm i'm suffering and, and then they'll say okay so we need the law and we're going to make it just adults who have six months or less to live who are mentally competent and uh, have a settled wish to die but then of course there are lots of people outside those categories who think they're suffering unbearably but they've got more than six months to live or um who who uh have lost mental competence but you know they would have wanted this and so on so uh, inevitably what happens when you create an exception you get new cases coming along challenging the law and because you've already accepted the principle you're then pressing the envelope and then we see growing numbers and growing categories of people and the other thing that happens inevitably is that you get a change in the public conscience as well so that uh things that people would have thought were unconscionable at, mm. at one year a few years later they're saying well really what's the problem with that and perhaps the, the classic illustration of that is in the related subject of abortion where mm. You know, we started off back in 1967 well you know this is only for very very extreme cases you know and then roll the clock on uh, a few decades and we have over 200,000 abortions a year and it's done for the most trivial of reasons uh, why is that and, and most people aren't that bothered about it why is that well because the public conscience changes um M Malcolm Muggeridge he used to famous um British commentator that some will remember uh, media person he, he used to say if you take a frog and put it into uh, boiling water it will jump out but if you put it into cold water and gradually bring that water to the boil the frog will make no attempt to escape until it's boiled to death and and the point is that if the if the moral temperature changes gradually enough then we just don't realize it you see and we mm. come to accept things that we would have thought were horrendous a generation earlier so th this expand on how that applies to um euthanasia laws then well it, it applies in this way that um you you make uh, an exception for a very very hard case you know the kind of cases that are often brought up on our television screens or brought to court and and most normal people are thinking well oh, if, if i was like that i'd want to die so there's a huge amount of of um mm. uh you know support uh, from public opinion, if you like, for, for those sort of cases. And so you make an exception, but then the next one comes along that's not quite, and then the next, the next, and then uh, inevitably you get uh, what we call incremental extension, more and more cases, widening categories, and the law increasingly turning uh, a blind eye to it. And of course, the, one of the big problems with assisted suicide um, convictions is that the key witness is dead, you see. And so uh, who's who's to know? The person who may be in, 
assisting them uh, may well have an interest in their death. You know, it might be a financial one, as I said, or mm -hmm. uh, you know, not having to care for them anymore because it's been a real burden, or you know, or maybe um, you know an emotional thing or whatever. Um, but that that that's the danger is that if the person has a vested interest in their, their death then they're going to give an account of the death in such a way that does not incriminate them. And so that's why it's so difficult um, to, to see, you know, whether there's been any foul play or real, real adherence to the law, even when it has been changed. So I come back to this point, it's far better to have a very clear law which prohibits all assisted suicide and euthanasia, and then leave it to the, the courts to exercise discretion in, in sentencing and prosecuting in hard cases. And, and what about public opinion, Peter? Is it, is it the case that the public generally wants this now? They want assisted suicide or euthanasia or something and, that, and, um, and therefore it's going to happen? Well, that's an interesting question. I, I was involved in campaigning against or speaking against a change in the law on euthanasia really from the first time I was involved at CMF back in 1992, I started and I was there 28 years. And I remember back in the early nineties uh, on surveys, there was 75 to 80% of people who are in favor of changing the law to allow euthanasia. It's pretty much the same now. Now it depends of course, about how you ask the question uh, as, as to what kind of answer you get and the language that you use. And, and that can be very cl clearly demonstrated uh, in surveys. But the fact is that in most surveys, the majority of people are in favour of a change in the law. And yet the law hasn't changed. And the reason is for that is that when it's been debated re repeatedly in Parliament, there have been a whole series of different bills, and people really look into the arguments, they uh, will change their minds. Uh, and the main, the most powerful argument is this concern about public safety, about vulnerable people who are demented or dying or elderly or sick or mentally ill or whatever, um, you know, being taken advantage of or, or people being forced to, to, to help them. So um, I, I think it is public opinion is in favour, but it depends on how you ask the question. It's, it's misinformed public opinion and it's public opinion that actually changes once people hear the arguments. And as I say, the, the best evidence for that is what's happened in Parliament. The, the biggest defeat to any pro-assisted suicide bill that we've ever seen in Britain was back in 2015 with the Maris Bill. And uh, every party virtually, I think with the exception of the Greens, uh, voted uh, a majority against this bill. So whether it was Tory or Labour, they were against it. Now you'd say, why is that? Because people tend to think, or you know, being pro uh, euthanasia is more kind of left-wing, emphasising personal autonomy and, you know, um, being pro-life is more right-wing or whatever, you know, but but actually both sides of the house were against it. And, and it was for the same reason that they could see if the law was changed, there would be the risk that uh, vulnerable people would be exploited and abused. So... Peter, it's gone. It's been to Parliament. I think you've, I think as many as ten times, hasn't it, in the last um, fifteen years or something, dozen years or something, and, and through the courts, of course, too. 
<laughs> and then it's been in the courts as well a number of times um and the courts every time have have also looked hard at the arguments and decided no we're not going to legalize in that way or it ought to be parliament rather than the courts that changes the law or something and so now we're expected to go back to parliament can you expand on how you think that's going to develop from here yeah so uh Meacher's bill uh, which is going to go to the house of lords we think in september it's it's similar to other bills and that it's saying well it's just for mentally competent adults with less than six months left to live but uh, one of the differences in it is that rather than just get two doctors to sign a piece of paper like in the abortion bill the abortion act um, they've got to get a court judgment as well so it, it's got the appearance of safeguards and what we've seen with the pro-euthanasia lobby is that they've come back with more and more restrictive bills with supposedly more safeguards you know in the hope that they're going to establish the principle and then uh, later um, you know crank it up and challenge the the guidelines so I think Meech's bill is very dangerous uh, simply in the way that it is so deceptive about what uh, the intentions of it really are and the way it it will be extended after it comes into law and we've seen this with the with the related issue of withdrawal of treatment withdrawal of feeding tubes now back in the early uh, 1990s around the time of the tony bland case uh, it was ruled in that case which went to the law lords then the precursor to the supreme court that you had to um go to a get a court judgment before you could remove a feeding tube from anybody with persistent vegetative state and what we've seen over the last 30 years is that first of all that the the categories of cases expanded so it was persistent vegetative state then it was minimally conscious state which is one step back then it was dementia and stroke and that's less serious forms of brain damage and so on and then now no one has to go to a court at all it's just a doctor's decision and there's no recording of what's going on so we don't know what's happening behind closed doors now inevitably that's what happens you establish the principle and then over time it gets eroded and it can be eroded very very quickly indeed so i think meacher's bill is very dangerous and we should be uh, opposing it in every way possible there's a new bill in scotland she is actually the chair chair chairwoman of dignity and dying isn't she so yeah. you know, she actually runs an organization that campaigns for a uh, very wide um ability to have assisted suicide, suicide and euthanasia no, absolutely and, and this is why you know people often say um you know, they say oh we, we haven't talked about this and, and i say well no we've been talking about it for the last 30 30 years almost constantly mm. and um you know and then they'll say well you know why is there such a huge demand for the change in the law and and i say well uh because there's a very strong small well-funded lobby group who are actively pushing for it you know so we we don't imagine that this has happened by accident and meacher's bill is just part of a long campaign that's run for for decades and is very well resourced so we need to be uh, we need to have our eyes open about that as christians because we know that um as i was saying every human's made in the image of god that we our lives are incredibly precious that none of us have a right to take life and that in a free and democratic society there are limits to freedom we're not entitled to freedoms that would undermine the freedoms 
of others and and we need to to fight to make sure that there are laws which are which are, are, are kind and just and strong on the statute books because the the ultimate function of government is not to give liberties to the determined and the desperate but actually to protect those who are most vulnerable to uh, abuse fantastic well listen peter that's been very very helpful um i just you reminded me as well that we did a live stream recently with um Nikki and Merv Kenwood, who I think you know, and, and yeah, well. to as you told that Merv was kind of in a locked in state for a while. And, and, and anyway, I mean, I wouldn't, don't really want to spoil the story, but what she experienced in the hospital has made her then a campaigner um, against euthanasia and against assisted suicide. Um, very powerful story. And maybe my colleagues can put the link up there. We've also um, produced a booklet here um, called Euthanasia and Assisted Suicide. Um, it's available to download for free and um, when we have in-person events again you'll be able to pick them up um, in hard copy as well um, but again we'll give you the link for um, how to um, um, uh, download that in this in the thing um, in our comments section there um, so listen thank you very much Peter that was really very very helpful you're brilliant at explaining these things your experience is obviously um, there and shows very well and we really appreciate you taking the time and also all the preparation that you took um, for your presentation and answering the questions today. Very, very helpful indeed. And thank you to those who've joined us watching, whether live or afterwards. I hope you found that as helpful as I help, as I found it. Um, do follow us um, on Twitter, YouTube, and uh, on email as well. And um, we have got our next Gospel Issue seminar coming up, which is on cultural Marxism on the 21st, Monday the 21st of July, one month's time exactly. Um, today, Cultural Marxism Crisis or Conspiracy with Reverend Dr. Melvin Tinker, who is an absolute expert on the subject, has written a book on the subject, um, and that'll be really interesting as well. So look forward to that one. So all that remains is to say thank you again and look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you very much. <laughs>